Hey friends, let's go back to the 90s with our new book, Mixtape Theology, 90s Christian Edition. It's part devotional, part retrospective, and all awesome. Rediscover the wonder of songs like The Great Adventure and Jesus Freak as you uncover their spiritual significance. But you know, we couldn't just give you a book without some 90s Christian cheese. We've included some original comics and hilarious retrospectives. Michael Tate of Newsboys and DC Talk calls mixtape theology the ultimate nostalgic throwback, and Michael W. Smith calls it a great read. Mixtape theology will have you falling in love with these songs and the gospel all over again. It's nostalgia served with a side of renewed faith, and it's available now at Amazon and Walmart.com. Now, back to the podcast. Welcome to Mixtape Theology. I'm one of your hosts, Rachel Cash. You are listening to part two of Dr. Ashley's conversation with Michael Card. In this final episode with Mr. Card, he answers questions that some of you sent to us via our social media. Thank you for sending those in. If you'd like to win a copy of Michael Card's latest book, The Nazarene, 40 Devotions on the Lyrical Life of Jesus, simply head over to our website, mixtapetheology.com, and sign up for our email updates by March 31st, 2021. And now, part two. our social media audience, we did have, I asked people if they had any questions that I could ask you. And so um, mm-hmm. I want to ask a few of those and some of them are fun. Okay. Some of them are a little deeper than others. You know, at Mixtape Theology, we're all about digging into the lyrics of theology of the songs we love. And you are kind of the gold standard in my estimation of theology and music, even if you're not going to write any more songs, at least in the in the 80s and 90s, and mm-hmm. uh, you were, um, it, was that challenging? Why don't we see more of that? I mean, someone could even just look up on your Wikipedia uh, and and read. There's times when you struggled with, you know, what was happening in the Christian music industry. And, um, yeah. and, and of course, you know, some of those artists in the 90s, I, I loved, and some I'm like, hey, what's going on? Um, yeah. Is it just a desire for people to sell albums, a lack of discipleship? Um, I mean, is that, I guess that's something you've probably thought about through the years. Yeah. answer is just one thing, being, you know, because it was a part of the Jesus movement. And a lot of us were writing, you know, writing songs. Uh, I was being decided by a pastor who asked me to write songs based on his sermon. So I would have never written music if it wasn't for that. Mm-hmm. And then once once I, I got into it, I think a lot of it was reacting against, you know, what I I saw was the commercialization of Christian music and right, you know, people writing a song that sounded like whatever the current secular hit song was and and uh I think those days are sort of over now, but uh but back in the day, it, it, for a lot of us it was something that we fought against. You know, yeah, it does seem like uh, that maybe is not as bad as it was. But then, and you know, now this is just an opinion. I could be totally wrong. Then the worship movement, um, which I know worship, you know, has went through stages for last several hundred years. And with a lot of good it brought, then it's kind of like every artist decided to make a worship album. And every worship leader that could play three chords on a guitar was writing worship songs. Right. 
And that seemed to water some things down too. I, maybe I'm yeah. wrong, but. No, no, I, th- I, I see it. I see it that way too. I think what happened was the failure of CCM uh, led to people writing worship music. And I really think it started as that the, the, the Christian CCM music was so shallow and so unbiblical. Other people just said, well, look, we're going to, I'm going to write these songs and, 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 uh, because of our failure in CCM to write worship songs, other people started. But then, unfortunately, the same thing that happened CCM happened to, to worship music. All of right. a sudden, you have worship music stars and right. people writing songs so they can be, you know. And so it did, you know, it, any, anytime something's commercialized that and, and uh, you know, it, I think it inevitably takes that direction. The, the truth is, though, there's still several lots of men and women out there writing some great stuff. You may not necessarily hear it uh, maybe yeah. only in your area or only in the church where they're, they're writing those songs, but there's some great songs being, being out there being, but uh, there, there's a lady in a church I went to for a long time. She was uh, elderly and she was sort of the matriarch of the church. And she used to say, if the devil can't make you do wrong, he'll make you do right wrong. <laughs> that was one of the wisest things I've ever heard in my life. So I think that's what happened with the music in general. If you can't make you do wrong, you will make you do right wrong. Hmm. And, and, you know, in your, in your, there is a renaissance, renaissance of, you know, people desiring to, I can think of some of my new favorites. The Gettys are doing a great job writing these modern yeah. hymns and sovereign grace music. There's a group I've been listening to city of light. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with them, mm-hmm. um, but where you just people have realized this. And so so that's the prayer that people are writing, God honoring biblical music for us to use in worship. And then still, I mean, you know, Psalms, hymns, praise songs and still use the hymns and still use the Psalms and write right. new stuff that's theological. Use all of it. Right. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you have any favorite artists? That was a question someone had. Um, the people I listen to tend to be the songwriter. I mean, the James Taylors and the people, like that, unfortunately, um, right. uh, well, you know, and not, not Christian, but, uh, although I did hear that he became a Christian. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm from the era of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and James Taylor. Those, those are the people, Dan Fogelberg, those are the people that I listen to. Uh, there's a, an instrumental a musician who lives here in Nashville, who is a believer. He's actually a friend of mine, John Mock. And John's instrumental music is uh, the, the best, the finest instrumental that's been being written right now. Mm-hmm. And he's a sweet, he's a sweet, sweet guy. So John Mock is, is, uh, is a guy, a go-to guy. Um, yeah, that's probably it. You know, here's a, here's a really interesting question. Um, one, one of our, uh, one of our people on social media asked Mr. Card, what was it like to have Phil Kagey open for you on your tour? So I didn't even, so, so did, uh, did Phil open up for you at one point? Yeah, we did. We did a tour together and, uh, I don't know if he always opened. I think what we did was we, it was a co-bill thing. And, um, um, some one, one night I'd open another night he'd open and we'd always play together at the end. Uh, yeah, Phil, Phil is, uh, I describe Phil as a quirky genius. He's, you know, you know, if you know who Phil Keggy is, you know, uh, he's, he's sort of our, uh, paradigm in terms of, of uh, being instrumentalist. 
Awesome. Uh, so no, that was you, a lot of fun. Yeah, even you being a phenomenal musician, that you know, there you're up on stage with um oh you know, one of the best guitar no players on planet Earth, you know. Right, right. You don't you don't kid yourself about whether you're a good a good guitar player when you're playing with Phil Kagi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, another person asked, and for the listeners that may not aware of this, and um as a musician, I'm aware of it and have watched it in fascination. So if you don't know, um Mike is um, you're left-handed, but you've always played a right-handed guitar upside down, right? Uh-huh. Is right. that did you just figure that out yourself? Did someone teach you how to do that? Did you, you know, your family couldn't find a right-handed guitar, and you're like, "Well, I'll just turn this this puppy upside down and figure it out." Like, what led to that? Well, I I grew up in a in a musical part of the country. I grew up in Nashville, and one of my best friends was uh, Earl Scruggs' son. Earl Scruggs, a banjo player. Mm-hmm. And uh, in their house, they had priceless pre-Civil War Martin D forty-five. It was mm-hmm. uh, when when they when they they got it from some Randy. The, his son Randy got it from some pawn shop, and and uh, when they called Martin um, to to value it for insurance, Martin said, "There's no number we can put on this guitar. It's literally it's priceless." Okay, and it's a right-handed guitar. Well, I could go over to their house and play guitar anytime I wanted to. And that guitar is the reason why I play right-handed instruments. I had access to some incredible uh, instruments, uh, but they're all right-handed. So, uh, and it's frankly much easier. I think uh, I can play anybody's guitar, which is a good thing. I don't have to have <laughs> a handed guitar. Um, another person asked. Um, so, did you help with the? Were you on the translation team for the Christian Standard Bible? Someone, yeah, I was. Someone mentioned to ask you about that, and maybe particularly yeah. with Psalms. That's amazing that you were part of that team. Yeah, yeah. I um, I was the stylist for the CSB, which means when the when the translators did their work, I would I would go through it and, and make sure that the style was fairly consistent. And um, and what it basically meant was, and this sounds like kind of a scam. I got paid for reading the Bible for like five years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a sweet gig Which, there, yeah. It was a sweet. It was a sweet deal. It was a sweet deal, and uh, and I'm very proud of CSB. I think it's a great translation. Um, uh, it's it's the one I use I use all the time now, and it's not because I worked on it. It's because I think it's a really good fresh translation. I think we need that from time to time. My mentor. Uh, Translated Mark in Hebrews for the NIV, and I can remember when he was, you know, involved in that process uh, in the late seventies and early eighties, and um, everyone was so angry. And I'd be, you know, why can't King James is good enough for Jesus? So why can't you just use the King James and that sort of <laughs> thing? But uh, I learned that it's important because language is always changing. Words, you know, words over time change, and uh, and so. Yeah, it was fun. And I learned a lot, learned a ton of stuff working with those, uh, the translators. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, uh, just a couple more questions. Um, I did want to ask, I had a, a, one of our, um, one of our audience members asked, and, and I love this question because w- one of my favorite songs of all time, they asked, did you, what about the backlash that you had from the song God's own fool? And I, I yeah. you know, I, I discovered God's Own Fool in the mid-90s, years after you had written it, and I loved it, and just the idea of paradox, and um, and so I, 
you know, I guess thinking about it, yeah, I can see how maybe some people that weren't really thinking through it, but was there backlash for, for that oh, yeah. song? Oh yeah. And it was, it was people that don't understand what a metaphor is. And if you don't understand what a metaphor is, it's hard to explain, you know, it's hard to explain that, but very literally they were saying, the Bible says, don't call your brother a fool. You're oh. in hellfire. And you know, you're, uh, of course, I guess I was calling myself a fool, but, but anyway, uh, they were, they were very upset by just the use of the word fool. And what I was doing was I was, I was adapting Paul's statement about the gospel being foolishness, which again, that's a metaphor. He did literally mean that obviously, but uh, it's foolishness to, uh, to, to the world. And if that's true, if the gospel, gospel is foolishness to the world, then we're God's own fools. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still think, you know, I still think that's a powerful idea. Uh, and it's a, um, I like that. I like that song. That's one of my favorite songs too. I love it. And, but, 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 you know, whenever you go out on a limb and try to say something new, people, there are people that just, you know, just don't get it. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I was commanded by people in whole church bodies, you know, to never, never play that song. And, oh, me. and uh, but you know what? It's okay. I don't mind getting in trouble if I feel like I'm doing the right thing. You know, I, um, and we hadn't talked about this song. I, I don't even know what your thoughts are on it. And the audience listening to this will be mixed. But recently, the a modern example is the song Reckless Love has had a lot of that same backlash of, you know, really? God's not reckless. And and I, I think, you know, the man that wrote that song, it was, again, a metaphor from our perception. God looks that way because why would he do this? We're not saying he is, but um, you got to you got to think through what he's actually saying. So, yeah. right. Well, and that, and that's the, that's the problem. There are, there are people who don't want to think through things and, and engage with their imaginations. Right. And um, yeah. So, but you know, people misunderstood Jesus in the same way. I mean, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Let's talk about, let's talk about some offensive language that people couldn't engage with. A lot of his disciples left, John says, mm. but um, yeah, he, but it's, metaphors are powerful that way. Mm. So, um, one more question. Um, I had one um, one listener wanted to ask, what is the background of the song, Who Can Abide from the Word? And they actually said the lyric, if we can't stand by faith, we can't stand at all. That's a, I know that's an uh-huh. old song you wrote, um, but he was yeah. really interested in the background of that song. Yeah, that's that's from Revelation, I think. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't remember writing, I don't remember what went, what I went through writing that song, uh, I, I was, you know, that's a question in Revelation, I think, or, or one of the prophets. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, that's, and that's, I can't, I can't call that up, but, um, um, it, it, that's me trying to, re, to, to react and engage with the song that's in, in, uh, in scripture. And, uh, and the clear teaching is, uh, you know, the implication is who can abide, who can, who can, you know, basically survive, uh, the second coming. And, uh, and the answer is if you don't stand by faith, you're not going to stand at all. So, mm-hmm. uh, that's what, that's what I can dig, dig up. Well, guys, this has been a mixtape theology and our special guest, Mr. Michael Card. I'm going to be giving away a copy of his newest book that we discussed the Nazarene, the lyrical life of Jesus. And if you'd like a chance at getting a copy of this, courtesy of InterVarsity Press, 
Just go to mixtapetheology.com and sign up for our email list and we'll get you in a drawing for that. Thank you for being here. Be blessed, everyone. Theology Podcast is part of the NRT Podcast Network. Find more Christian music-related podcasts at newreleasetoday.com.